Welcome to a 2017 Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Speaker Series podcast, sponsored by Kessler Foundation. Guest speaker, Dr. Eli Vakil presents Long-Term Outcome Following Traumatic Brain Injury, Three-Factor Cognitive Reserve Structure. Dr. Vakil is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Gunda Multidisciplinary Brain Research Center, Bar Il University, Ramat Gan, Israel. This presentation was recorded on Tuesday, February 7, 2017 at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, East Hanover, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research. I'm going to talk to you today about a project we had about two years ago, it started actually about four years ago, about cognitive reserve and, and TBI. So first of all, many studies in the last three decades have attempted to detect reliable measures that would predict outcome following TBI. Prediction of outcome has theoretically significant and important implications for planning of rehab and allocation of resources. And uh, so far, I mean, most of the studies in, in the last few decades focused on, on severity of injury. Where is my pointer here? Okay, on severity of injury. And as we know, uh, some of them show, do show some, uh, explain some of the variability, some of them not at all, and some of them uh, view uh, pre-movement uh, variables as, uh, as mediated. But the, the bottom line is that severity of injury explains very small portion of variability of outcome. So definitely we're missing something. Definitely there are other variables that should, we should take into account to predict outcome because, as we said, it's very, very important for various reasons, practical reasons and theoretical reasons. So we're going to see this chart following us I mean, throughout the talk. But so as I said, we have various measures of severity of injury and various measures of outcome. And most of the work has been done, I mean, using some of these measures and see how they predict outcome. So among the severity measures, we have uh, disability related to brain injury, post-traumatic amnesia, PTA, loss of consciousness, the duration of loss of consciousness, and the Glasgow Coma Scale. And we know that they're not really good predictors. Actually, the Glasgow Coma Scale probably is much better predicting survival than, than long-term outcome. So, and also when we talk, <coughs> we talk about outcome, it's not a unitary construct. So we know that there are various aspects of outcome. There are county functioning, daily functioning, mental status, social functioning, vocational status. So are they all the same? So we quite often talk about some construct, and, and sometimes we interpret it or the, the, we, we're just taking one aspect and we think that represents the whole thing, but are we correct? So I like this quote by a physician, American physician, Osler. It is much more important to know what sort of patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. So in other words, it's not sufficient just to look at what the, all these parameters of the injury, okay? Because if you don't take into account what was his person pre-morbid or prior to the injury, who is he? Who is she? I think who is he because, as you know, 
about what, 70% of the TBIs are he, so. Okay, so what we were interested in is really focusing on the pre-morbid variables and seeing, first of all, what I'm going to tell you what we found in terms of, again, severity of injuries predicting outcome, but also how the pre-morbid variables predicted outcome, and, and finally, how the pre-morbid variables are mediated by the severity of injury, how, the, how that interacts with the severity of injury. Okay. So now I want to introduce you, some of you probably know the, the term of reserve. It's a theoretical framework of reserve for unifying the multitude of potential predictors of outcome has been proposed in research on aging. So it really started primarily with, with aging. This theory tends to account for the, the repeated observation of the mismatch between brain pathology or brain damage and the clinical uh, expressions of that damage. Okay, that's a, a quote from Yakov Stern's paper. And again, most of the, stu the early studies, the early, uh, I mean, about 2000, they started with uh, dementia, Alzheimer, and, and aging, okay? Thus, the concept of reserve has been used as a potential buffer between brain pathology and clinical outcome. Actually, Paul Stas quite early talked about it, but it's really, uh, I don't know, there was not so much follow-up just until really it came and uh, large, a lot of studies <coughs> started with aging and uh, that's where uh, the real research started about. Uh, so let me just briefly tell you a few things about aging and dementia and brain cognitive reserve, okay? Uh, because we, our work is in many ways based on the findings or on the terms used in, with aging. So I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the non-study, with the non-project, okay? And it, not, I'm showing you this picture not because of Nicole Kidman, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and actually what they found that here's a quote by Stern that really some of them you know these nuns donated their brain their body uh, to for research and what they found that there were some nuns that they showed brain pathology and still clinically did not have the symptoms of dementia, of Alzheimer. And that was very, uh, very, I mean, they couldn't understand it, but then what, what they found is, let, let, let's go through it together, okay? So another perspective study, fre uh, frequency of participants in cognitive activities like reading newspapers, magazine books, was assessed as a baseline for 801 elderly Catholic nuns, uh, uh, priests, and, and brothers without dementia. During follow-up, one-point increase in the cognitive activity score was associated with 33% reduction in the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Additionally, engagement in cognitive activity was also associated with slower rate of cognitive decline. So no doubt, your, the background, the, the uh, being involved with cognitive activity has, uh, has a great influence on how the brain disease will be expressed clinically. Okay, so now when we started to look at what really, what is this construct? Well, how do you measure a cognitive reserve? Okay, so for example, from Jakob Stern, a factor score that summarizes years of education. That was one of his 
major measures. Yes, of education as a as a proxy uh, for intelligence, and scores of the national reading tests, adult reading tests, and the weights are vocabulary subtests was used as an index of cognitive reserve. So here you see the emphasis is primarily here on, on some cognitive aspects of the cognitive research. Positive correlation between number of years of education and age of dementia onset. So what he found in series of studies in Colombia is that the more educated is the person, the probability of having a, a Alzheimer will be much later. Okay, so it definitely postponed uh, the the clinical expressions of, of the disease. So there is a distinction which I'm not going to follow it through, but just mention it. So people, some people talk, talk about both, about brain reserve and cognitive reserve. So one way to dissociate between the two is to look at the brain reserve, and we're going to see several measures uh, of that, is it's a more passive and it's more we're talking about the hardware, while the cognitive is a more active, something that we we have something to do about it, and, and it's more uh, the software. But we're going to see it in more details in a second. So, okay. so here, based on some of Aaron Bidler's work with TBI, that brain reserve, I mean, he used all these measures, which I call more the hardware, total brain volume, and all these measures, total ventricular volume. Okay. But in addition to what Aaron Bigler has, uh, has uh, mentioned, we know from the literature that other aspects that we could be considered as affecting brain activity per se is like psychiatric history and history of drug or alcohol abuse. Okay, which could be viewed also as kind of a brain reserve. Eventually, I'm going to add to it one more thing, is aging. Aging, in a sense, is, is a compromise. <coughs> uh, we like it or not, but our brain uh, shrinks from the age of 30 to the age of 90. You know, work of uh, Naftali Raz. Um, you know, the posterior lobes about 15%, and the frontal lobes and the hippocampus, you know how much? About 30%. Okay, so every morning I look at the chart and say, okay, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> 20% down. <laughs> so we're going, at the end of my talk, I'm going to talk about aging is also kind of a, a, a brain reserve that we, we're losing, actually. Okay. So when we talk about cognitive reserve, um, so we could look, I mean, we, we looked into all the various measures used in the literature, and we find a wide range of measures. And we ask ourselves, are they really tapping exactly the same construct, the same theoretical construct? So that really was our first question before really testing, uh, uh, making any predictions. So first of all, we wanted to know, are these measures reflect the same theoretical construct? I think that's a very fundamental question to ask. So when we looked at it just on a, on a, on a surface value, so we found some measures of intelligence, uh, such as education, occupation, and then we found also leisure activity, socioeconomic status, so, and, and the funny thing is that you can read a, a, a paper with the title Cognitive Reserve and they'll be talking only about SCS. You can read a paper on Cognitive Reserve and they'll be talking about uh, leisure activities and other papers will be talking about cognitive activities or, or, or pre-morbid cognitive level. Okay? 
So are they really representing the same theoretical construct? Okay. So all of this associated with slower cognitive decline in normal aging, as well as re uh, reduced risk of dementia. Okay, so we have here several studies that each one measured sometimes some combinations of these, but definitely uh, it, it is a question whether they're representing the same construct. So now we, we thought to apply the same questions to patients with TBI. So unlike pathological aging, TBI involves an identifiable event that may decrease reserve by potentially setting the process of the aging brain off its normal course. Okay. So now we, we're going to, add, to look at these pre-morbid variables. We're not going to talk much about the brain reserve, Okay, as, as you see, there are some studies that were conducted uh, early on, but they did not use the theoretical framework of brain or cognitive reserve. Now, in a retrospective perspective, we could look at it and say, okay, they were talking, in our new terms, they were talking about brain reserve. So there were some studies talking about psychiatric history, how <coughs> that affect uh, outcome, history of drug or alcohol abuse, okay? lower total intracranial volume, all of these fall under the, what I refer to as brain reserve. What about previous studies that now we could look at them and say, okay, we were talking about cognitive reserve without really calling it by that name, including one of our studies, okay? Here's Peter Donovic. Yeah. He, he was in Israel, uh, and we started actually this project when he was there, yeah. so he was involved in that project, so. Okay, so there are studies that marital status uh, has an effect, socioeconomical status, occupational status, education, pre-morbid intelligence. So there were studies talking about what we would refer to it today as cognitive reserve, but they were not really studied as an integrated effort to, to combine all of these. Okay, so in this study, what we really wanted to do, we have several goals, but let's start with the first one. First of all, is evaluating the construct of cognitive reserve, multitude of potential predictors of outcomes. Okay, so in this study, we had uh, 89 individuals. Some of them are from my, the rehab center I'm in charge. It's uh, veterans, and they are with us about 30 years. Uh, and so we have some older, we're going to see in a second, the demo, uh, demographic uh, uh, information. But, but uh, so some of them are quite old. As you see, the age range is, is huge. And some of them were actually from a rehab hospital just recently injured. So the, and and it, it, we wanted it with, with a wide range because one of the things we wanted to measure is the effect of age on, on all these variables. Okay? So the study includes 89 individuals. As you see, the vast majority are males, primarily also because some of our sample is veterans. So it's, again, even more, uh, uh, I mean, the ratio is even more pronounced. Uh, more males are involved, of course. With moderate to severe TBI, at least 18 years old at the time of injury. Okay? And here's some uh, information about this sample. Uh, as you see, we have a, a age of injuries between 18 to 58, age of testing in between 19 and, and 73, years since injury, education, Glasgow Coma Scale, 
and duration of karma. Okay, so all of them are... Uh, okay. Now, we, we just collected a lot of measures with, which covers all or as many variables used in the literature as measures of cognitive research. <coughs> so we, we looked at them, some of them, as, as I mentioned before, some of them could be viewed as uh, reflecting, is it the first? Yeah. Reflecting uh, pre-mobile socioeconomic status. So for example, like parents' occupation, sibling numbers, income, self-report of SES. Some of them are pre-morbid intelligence measures, okay? Uh, it's, we use the Hebrew version of the waste R, uh, and we use what's called, you know, the hold measures, information, vocabulary, the matrix reasoning. Hold test uses the practice for pre-morbid intellectual functioning in TBI. Now, an important comment here. We did not use number <coughs> of years of education, although it is a quite popular measure. Do you know why? Because these, are unlike the work with aging, in which, you know, an, an, an older person had the opportunity to, to use his, his or her potential and to go to school, if we're dealing with, with veterans or with the youngsters that were injured at the age of 19, so it's meaningless to say that he's only high school graduate because it, that does not reflect really his or her potential. Because uh, if he, uh, this person was injured 10 years later, maybe he would have gone through university for higher education. So we thought that it's a you know, it's distorted measure. So we decided not to use it because we don't think it's really a, a good measure. So we have to be careful about it. Because have we used it, that would, uh, I think, would, would affect uh, our results. And because, as I said, some of these youngsters very, were very bright, but they were injured at the age of 19 or 20. They didn't go to, to higher education. And just saying that they are graduates of uh, high school graduates does not really reflect. It's not a definitely a good proxy of their intellectual ability. So that's an important difference between the studies with aging and the study with TBI. And the last group which we put all together uh, are the leisure, pre-morbid leisure activity. It's a questionnaire. And in this questionnaire, also broken down into several components, cognitive activities. So for example, how often did you, did you uh, practice or develop an uh, artistic uh, uh, pastime? Social activity, how often were you seeing friends? And physical activity, how often did you go for a walk or ride? bicycle. Do you want to answer these questions? <laughs> okay. So we had, so we put all of this together, all of these measures together, and the hypothesized underlying structure of the cognitive reserve concept was examining using structural equation model approach. So we said, okay, let's see. Are they all, all of them would merge into one factor, two, three factors? Okay. A model were estimated with the EQS. Okay, that's more technical. So when we looked at the one-factor model, putting all of this together, what we see, it doesn't really explain much of, of the variance. And that's one point. The second point is only really, as you can see, the, primarily the cognitive measures went into this factor. Uh, income here, uh, as uh, socioeconomic status was a little bit loaded, but 
but the bottom line is that many of the indicators did not load significantly on the respective latent variable. And overall, the one-factor model provided a full fit to the data, okay? We tried two, also it didn't work, but let's uh, this information. And eventually we came up with the model of a three factors model, okay? And, uh, and let's look at it more in details. So as you can see, first of all, it's obvious that it's not really one homogeneous construct, cognitive reserve. Definitely, if when you, we looked into the various measures, and they fall nicely into what, you know, it has, a, I would say, ecological validity, that all the cognitive measures were together, all these uh, socioeconomical status measures falls together into second factors, and leisure activity falls into a separate factors, okay? So we definitely see that, that when we combine all these measures, they really do not reflect, uh, cannot be considered as reflecting a unitary construct. So when we talk now about cognitive reserve, we should keep in mind that really we should ask the following question, which component of cognitive reserve are we talking about? And that's going to be crucial when we want to make predictions, how cognitive reserve predicts outcome. So now we should ask, which component of cognitive reserve predicts outcome? Which one is a better or worse predictor of outcome? Okay, you can look into the, the connection among these factors. So you see the intelligence and the SES are slightly related, SES and leisure activity are related, but intelligence and SES and, and uh, leisure activity are not related. So the, the, the take-home message from this finding is that we should now, we cannot just talk about a, fact, a cognitive reserve factor, but we need to be more specific about it. Okay? So let's go back to this. It, it looks busy slide, but it's really simple. So at the moment, I'm ignoring the brain user. We have some preliminary studies, and actually now we're going, uh, we we collecting all the the imaging data that we have about these 89 subjects. So far, I think we, we got hold of about 60, 62 uh, CT scans, MRIs, uh, because some of them, as I said, were injured uh, about 30 years ago. So, and we're going to 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 analyze better to have a better analysis of this brain reserve component, which I don't have at the moment the information, but we are working on it. So now when we're talking about cognitive reserve as a pre-morbid measure, so we have now three separate me independent measures which we're going, and we're going to use the, 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 the factor measure of each one and uh, to Oh, by the way, one more point that I would like to mention is, uh, I'm going to mention it later on, but let's look at it here. So now, even if I want to take a representative measure of each one of these, at least now I can say, okay, if you want to take a representative measure of intelligence, you <coughs> can take either information or vocabulary. If you want to take a representative measure of SES, you better take the income as a measure. So it, it gives us information. Leisure activity probably take cognitive activity. Remember, they have three sub-components sub to the leisure activity. So this one is the uh, most loaded measure. 
So that, that's also in, in, in because we, we cannot in every study use all of these measures. So at least that give us a, a, a direction how to handle it. Okay. So now uh, we have all these busy uh, slides, but it's telling us that when we want to assess the effect of cognitive reserve, we should treat each one of these three components separately. Okay. So let's summarize first So what we have so far. So cognitive reserve is not a unitary uh, structure, but rather a multi-dimensional one with at least three different components. Okay, implications of a uniform uh, combination of cognitive reserve indices may lead to inconsistent results. So best res uh, representative of each one of these factors, I told you that would uh, help us to, to pick, the, pick up the, the right measures. So that's... That was published in genes, I mean, probably. Okay. So now the second part is now we are ready to, to, to test cognitive reserve and test severity of injury and how they predict uh, uh, of the real-world long-term outcome. Okay. So first of all, we wanted to, to replicate or to test the effects of brain injury before going into, into, uh, before going into the cognitive reserve. So first of all, we wanted to ask, from our measures, okay, which one of these injury severity measures best predict which of these outcome measures? So again, we should be careful, particularly if we want eventually to study brain behavior relations. So we cannot just talk about vague construct. We have to be as specific to narrow it down as possible. Because if we want to want to find a correlate so between any activity or any functions and brain, you should break it down as much as you could because that's the only chance that you'll have to, to find any reasonable correlation with the brain. I mean, those uh, that were Dianess and heard Corbetta's talk and, and, and Nina's talk both pointed to the same point that, you know, the, the chances to find the area that, that, that serves a, a theory of mind, it, it just, it's not rational. It, it doesn't make sense. Okay, so you have to break it down into very, very specific processes, and I think that's one step towards uh, in that direction. So first of all, we wanted to look into injury measure and outcome and the relation to outcome measures. Okay, so the measures of severity that we uh, had access to is Glasgow Common Scale, PTA, length of loss of consciousness, and disabilities related to brain injury, because there were some studies showing that if a person has some motor deficits and other deficits, that's, that's also, it's a toll and, it's, uh, and it adds to it the severity of injury. So let me take you through this slide. Okay, so here we have, here we have the, the outcome measures that we, that we measured, okay? So it's a broken down. The cognitive functioning goes, okay, we use the full-scale IQ, verbal learning and memory, the Ray auditory verbal learning test, visual learning and memory, the, the Ray Ostrich complex figure, executive function of Wisconsin, okay? And semantic, phonetic fluency. So we have a whole range of, of measures measuring outcome currently person's uh, performance. Okay, we have vocational status, we have a scale, social functioning, daily function, and mental status. So we have, if you can see here, we have very specific questionnaires, 
and measures of each one of all these outcome measures. So now when we talk about outcome, again, we don't treat it as one construct, but rather as we want to see which one of these elements predict which one of these elements. So we want to be very careful about it. Okay. The predictive power of injury severity variables on long-term outcome was evaluated. Either we did, and I'm going to show you correlation, and primarily regression are more informative. After controlling for years, since injury, because you can't put all these variables together, it's, it's a mess, so you always need to control for something. Okay, so we, here we control for year, years of, uh, of since injury. Now, the, 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 the correlation table here, just have a quick look at it, just the impression, and as you can see, so here we have the injury severity uh, variables, okay? The Glasgow Coma Scale, PTA, loss of consciousness, number of disabilities. And here we have all these uh, uh, outcome measures. Just have a quick look and see that most of the correlations has to do with the cognitive function. So all of these are be predict much better cognitive performance and social functioning to some extent and daily functioning. Okay? So that's. Uh, a general impression, but when we look into regression, so it's a, it's a cleaner picture, and quite clearly, what we see here that PTA, out of all the various cognitive measures that we have, uh, the severity of injury measures that we have, PTA is the best predictor of outcome, not only of the cognitive uh, functioning but also social functioning. Okay. Glasgow Coma Scale, to some extent, predicted the Wisconsin sorting test, and okay, and loss of consciousness, really only one measure, and the number of disabilities was not uh, was irrelevant. Okay, so what we see here again, the point I'm trying to make is, we should be very careful not to use very broad names, very broad constructs, very broad abroad titles of, you know, severity of injury. We should ask which measure of severity of, measure of injury, which measure of outcome are we talking about, okay? So the picture is clear, and previous studies have also pointed to it, that PTA is a good, is a good measure for, is one of the best outcome measures, more than the other, the other ones. Okay, the second is the relative contribution of each of the three, now we're treating cognitive reserve as not as a unitary construct, but the three cognitive reserve factors to, uh, uh, to predicting outcome was examined while controlling initial block covariance for severity of injury, agent injury, and time since injury. So if you look at it here, so we are bypassing now, we're looking at, at uh, I like to see, probably I like to work with my right hemisphere, apparently, so I like to see it visually, so, <laughs> not just with words. I think maybe that's part of uh, working with a TBI patient that you always try to bypass. If a person does not, you can't access, you know, just with verbal, so you try to draw it. So always, so I think also with my students, so I try to present it verbally, <laughs> and then I shift into visually, so to cover all cognitive styles uh, that in the room. Okay. 
So I don't know if it's my need as a, to understand or my need as a teacher. Okay. So now the same things, uh, the same, I mean, as I said it in words. So now we want to see how each one of these components of cognitive reserve predict by bypassing injury severity predicts outcome. And again, which component of outcome? And here again, let me take you through this slide. Okay, so uh, that's uh, the correlation of the cognitive reserve factors with long-term functioning measures, okay? So we have here, we have here the, the, the domains of premorbid, intelligent factors. So now we use the, the, the factor measure, uh, the leisure activity factor and the SES factor. And here are the outcome measure, uh, the, the cognitive functioning, vocational status, and, okay, all the measure we've seen before, okay? And look at it, and again, just get a, a general impression, and you can see that the, the intelligence factors are highly correlated with all of these, okay? Not only with the cognitive functioning, but also with the other ones, okay? Okay, just, just look at an overall picture. The leisure activities, okay, the leisure activities has some correlation, and SCS is also very weak. So just a general impression is that, again, that the intelligence sub-factor of cognitive reserve is the one which is the best predictor of all the, all the components. And here, when we look at the regression, again, it's, it's much nicer and cleaner to look at, to see, and again, intelligence is, you see, highly related to cognitive functioning, to vocational, to social, to basically to everything. So the best, so now, our conclusion, I'm going to go over it later, that when we talk about cognitive reserve, apparently the most pronounced, so if I have to, I have limited resources, so I would bet I would put my money into the intellectual measures, intelligence measures. Leisure activity has some correlation, okay, with the cognitive functioning, with mental status, and daily functioning. SCS here uh, did not have an, an, uh, any correlation. So, so the first conclusion is that, that when we bypass severity of injury, uh, what we find is that the inter intellectual measures are the best predictors not only of cognitive outcome, but all the other measures of outcome, okay, which is very important. Now we want to look into the, how does that interact, the interaction of cognitive reserve by severity of injury, okay? And again, going back here, now we have a stop here, <laughs> okay? So it's not a direct line, now it's interacting with the severity of injury. The data are very complex, so I've selected several examples which tells a story because it's, it's quite a consistent pattern of results. So I just took a sample that we take it because it's, it's a quite heavy statistics, and so I just I chose some slides to, to make the point. So if we look into occupational level as one of the outcome measures, and we looked into one of the predictors, low SES and high SES. <coughs> and what we find here is that with high, highly se or severe patients, the, 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 the SES doesn't play a role at all. However, it is, um, uh, it is uh, predict, uh, predictive of 
when, when we're talking about low injury severity. And that's a pattern we're going to see again and again. So again, if we look at the occupational level, we look at the intelligence as the pre-morbid measure, and we see it almost have a minor effect, negligible effect, when it's highly or severely injured person. However, these cognitive reserve measures play a role when it's less severe patients. So when it's very severe, cognitive reserve really doesn't play a real significant role as a predictive variable. It plays a role when it's a, a, a relatively more or less, less injured or less severe injuries. Let's see it again. With the rare auditory verbal learning test, we took the sum of uh, trials one to five, which reflects learning. Okay. And again, when we look at the high severity, again, it plays a role, but it's, it's a smaller, it's, it's, a Z, it's a Z score, so if that's zero is normal. <clears throat> so you see that with, with uh, there is a difference between low and high, but it's much more pronounced when we're talking about, about, uh, about low severity. Okay, so again and again, the, the, the role of cognitive reserve is, is much less predictive when it's very severe pa with very severe patients, but it's more uh, of a predictor when we're talking about low severity. Okay? That's uh, also Okay. Summary, second summary. Okay. So TBI severity, predicted long-term cognitive, social, and daily functioning outcome. PTA was the best predictor of intelligence, social, social functioning were the best predicted. Cognitive reserve factor after controlling for injury of severity, pre-injury intellectual functioning, okay, measured score, uh, scoring to hold principle, predicted long-term cognitive, occupational, emotional, and social outcome, as well as daily functioning. Leisure activity predicted mental status and daily functioning. None of the outcome measure was, pre was predicted by SCS, except uh, the interaction with severity of injury on occupational level. So that was, the, I think, the last slide here. And now, wait a second. No, it's one of here. Okay, so here we saw it interacted with the in, uh, severity of injury, but as a main effect, it, it didn't have, uh, okay. And, uh, well, okay, and pre-morbid pre variables prediction of outcome is moderated by severity of injury. Cognitive reserve predicts outcome better with less than more severe injury. So that's, I think, an important take-home message. When a person is very severely injured, then really the, the cognitive reserve, whether he was more or less intelligent before, has more leisure activities, higher social uh, economical status, it becomes irrelevant with less uh, severely injured patients, then it plays a role, a moderating role. Okay. And, and, and I'm saying that because it's important, because if you don't separate this population, you might find a kind of a mixed bag of, of results, and you don't know uh, what to attribute it to. And I think this dissociation is very important to us to make the distinction and, and this measure of severity is, is critical to, in order to understand how it interacts with cognitive reserve. Okay. 
Now, cognitive changes is a function of age in TBI. So as I said before, we can look at it as the brain reserve uh, uh, affects aging. TBI reduces brain reserves. So, so the interaction between two TBIs, in, in a sense, is a, is a brain reserve measure, right? Because it's a compromise. And aging is, is affects the, the brain. So how these two uh, uh, have an effect or help us to predict the outcome. Okay. Accelerated cognitive uh, deterioration is a function of age. Okay, these like previous studies, several studies have found that TBI was a risk factor for future uh, dementia and neuropsychiatric disorder. So again, we did not use previously, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s. We did not use really the term cognitive uh, reserve or brain reserve in this case, but, but we could look at it as, so there were some indications that when a person is injured, the whole aging effect is much accelerated, okay? So do we have indication in our sample supporting these conclusions? So the way to present it is, I'm going to take several uh, variables, for example, the ray AVLT, which is uh, the current cognitive uh, performance of a person, these are these because we didn't have a control group here. So what we did is we compared it to the norms of that test, okay? We have uh, Israeli norms which are developed for the race. So when we looked at, at, uh, at, at these, at our patients, okay, and we looked at uh, the rate, we looked at the, as a function of age, we see that between 30 and 50 <coughs> there was not major difference. But at 50, those that are older, they deviate from, from the norms match to their age. So keep in mind, here we're comparing it to the, it's not absolute comparison, it's comparison to the, to the norms of that age range, okay? So how much they deviate from their age norms, okay? So in absolute terms, of course, are much worse, but we wanted to, to separate the effect of age and the effect of the injury. And what we see, even that comparing to their uh, age norms, there are almost three standard deviations below, no, uh, below normal uh, when you are more than 50 years old, while you're only two, about two standard deviations when you're up to the age of 50. Again, the same pattern when we looked at fluency. So, uh, you're about one standard deviation below norms up to the age of 50, but two standard deviation when you're uh, more than 50. Wisconsin card sorting, okay? So again, the, the older you are, the more you deviate from your norms. So that's a consistent pattern that we found. And here's an interesting comparison between the hold and don't hold, in a way, uh, confirming uh, the, the, the importance of this dissociation between these two aspects of intelligence. So they don't hold, which we assume to be more sensitive to age and to injury. So as you see, a clear effect of age, okay? So when you're about 30, so you are closer to the, the scale score uh, norms, and the older you get, you deviate from, from the normal score, okay? 
when we look into the whole measures, you see an effect, but it's much, much, much less, okay? Which really confirms the notion that you should, you could rely on the hold measures as indicators of pre-morbid intelligence. Anyway, because we see here a, a, a slight effect, but you know, but but it's it's you see all of them are around the the ten, which is the norm. Okay, so it's not a, so in a way we confirmed here the the dissociation between hold and don't hold, and okay, so summary of this part is older, more than younger individuals with TBI are cognitively impaired compared to controls to the norms. Brain injury could be viewed as an impairment of brain reserve affecting aging. Okay? So let's summarize and then I'll, 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 I'll have a few minutes talking about future direction. Okay? So cognitive reserve is not a unitary stru uh, structure, but rather a multidimensional one with at least three different components, pre-mobile intelligence, pre-mobile SES, and leisure activity. Severity of injury, PTA primarily, and pre-morbid variables, intelligence, predicts outcome. However, prediction is moderated by severity of injury. Cognitive reserve predicts outcome better with less than more severe injuries. Okay? Older, more than younger individuals with TBI are cognitively impaired compared to control. Now, in terms of future direction, just a few slides. So, so far, I have reported about the how much severity of injury predicts outcome, how much uh, cognitive reserve predicts outcome, and how much severity of injury mediates the effect of cognitive reserve. And we saw an interesting interaction that it really primarily plays a role when it's less severe injuries, and its role is much more minor when it's uh, with very severe injuries. Now, primarily clinically-driven studies have tested the effects of various uh, interventions, rehabilitation programs following TBI, and family supports on outcome, okay? So we, we have, so we know that there are other factors, because you see the, the, the overall, the major goal behind all this, uh, this project is, how can we predict outcome given pre-morbid information, severity of injury information? But we have to admit that there are other, other factors that play a role. For example, whether after, after the injury, there was, I mean, here it's a rehabilitation uh, hospital. So are we ignoring that? So the, I didn't see yet studies that, that now looked at the, the post-morbid and talking about not only uh, just looking at the outcome, but talking about the role of intervention, the role of family and social support. Okay. We know that it plays a role. Okay. When I worked at the Rusk Institute, we used for patients that their families were not committed to attend a session once a week, were not admitted to, to the program. Okay? And my mentor, Yehuda Ben Ishai, used to say, I'm not a, it's not a garage. You bring in your car, call me when it's fixed. Okay? You need to be involved. Okay? And, uh, and based on, on a clinical experience, that it's really critical, and we see it in Israel as well. Okay, a different study. I was involved in a study when I was at Urbana Champagne for, on sabbatical, and basically what we found with aging, 
that that aerobic activity, you can look it up, it's in nature. I'm proud I have at least one paper <laughs> in nature, <laughs> but it's thanks to Art Kramer. Uh, that what we found, we compared uh, individuals that went through yoga training for six months versus aerobic training for six months. And what we found is that, and we measure pre and post, all their physical capabilities, intellectual capabilities, and we found that aerobic improved these, uh, patient, these individuals' performance. Okay? So aerobic performance improved. So I don't know of studies that have used that. As, as a measure. We know that dancing is improved cognitive performance of, of elderly. All kinds, all kinds of, of uh, sports activities are very important. So if we want to be more accurate and explain more of these variants, we need to take all of these into consideration. Okay. Another factor which I did not report, but if you are welcome to look uh, to, to find the paper, it's in the Journal of Clinical Experimental Neuropsychology, when we talked about Personality characteristics, we call them emotional reserve. That's also a factor, okay? And so here, when we talk about cognitive reserve, maybe we should talk not only about cognitive, but emotional reserve, maybe physical reserve, okay? And finally, I want to thank my collaborators, Yuri uh, Rozavsky, Fatlevich, who was my doctoral student, and uh, Michal, uh, also my master's student. Thank you very much. Questions. Okay. So you showed that um, cognitive reserve matters more for a, a, a less severe injury than a more severe injury, and you're looking at brain reserve, but you haven't got there yet. How do you think brain reserve is going to play into that? Will that have the same sort of effect? Or? I think that it will be correlated in one way or another with the severity of injury. I'm assuming, yeah. or maybe with local injuries, I mean, the location, I'm not sure yet. But definitely, those brain measures that would be most predictive of severity of injury might, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, 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 that will play, again, so the, the imaging measures that we're going to collect, probably those that, are, that correlate with severity of injury, that's the ones that, uh, that's going to play a role, I think. Right. So, so if it's a, it's a minor injury, so we expect the cognitive reserve to play a more uh, pronounced role. If it's a major injury, okay, if we measure volume, then we, our prediction would be that you'll have that cognitive reserve would play a much lesser role. Right, but I'm wondering if you have like a bigger brain to begin with, and you get a bigger injury, is that going to be uh, so less how, of a bad thing? I don't you, know. It's yeah. a good question. So, is it relative to the person, or yeah. it's a, yeah, usually I think Bigler's measures are, are relative. Uh, it takes it as a it's, it's a ratio of the total, and uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 a question. But in general, I think that will follow our conclusion that it's it's another uh, reflection of severity of injury in one way or another. I think so. M maybe by the summer I'll have more <laughs> right. more information, so I'll share. I'll be happy to share it with you. Yes. Uh, thank you. It's a great talk. Thank you. Uh, so, with regard to the last study that you presented, did you happen to look at any interactions with uh, age at injury or, or time since injury? So, what I'm wondering is, are these individuals who 
had an injury early on and aged with their TBI, or is it that they're kind of older and more fragile and then Thank you for the question. Okay. One of the problems doing conducting such, such a study is that it's very difficult to dissociate between the age of injury and number of years since injury. Because think about it. Okay. The younger the person was injured, so probably, I mean, the, or put it the other way around. Those that, that we have them 30 years since injury probably were injured as young, as young uh, adults, okay? So you need a much, much larger sample to have, like, older adults with, uh, you know, recent injuries, and, 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 and yet, uh, still, with young adults, you cannot, have, uh, you cannot have long, you know, many years since. So these two are confounded, I admit. And uh, with this sample size, which is not bad, you know, about 90 individuals, uh, we still, we, we, we could not really make this dissociation. But it's definitely a good question. Yes? I just have kind of a general question, since you've been in this area of reserve for a little bit. The, robust, the robustness of estimating reserve from pre-morbid measures, right? And, but they're measured after injury, substantially after injury. And I know that the assumptions are they don't change, you know, blah, blah. But what's your opinion on that? Yeah, it, it's it's a risky game. I mean, that's the best we can do unless, we, although, although, uh, yeah, that's the best we can do. Unless you, you decide to measure, uh, to, to run uh, all kind of tests to the whole population and hopefully, you know, one day after they'll be injured. We actually have one paper, uh, you can look it up in my website, uh, in which we, we, we asked the military to, to give us, and we got the permission of our patients, to give us their, uh, it's a kind of intellectual measures where they were uh, registered to the army, and, and looking which, how, which current measure best predict. So we have real data prior, I mean, when they were prior to the injury, pre-morbid measures. And we found, we did f confirm that actually not the, the, the don't hold measure, it, it was a good predictor of their intellectual pre-morbid, but even a better measure, let me see if I remember correctly, was best performance. You know, the, there is a discussion in the literature which one predicts better the pre-morbid, whether the classical hold measures or say, forget about the hold measures. L let me take the subscale, the highest performance. Again, it has a rationale that, that you know, that if they, for a normal person, all of them do correlate with each other, okay, that's a justification for summarizing it into one, one score. So then who cares if it's, so maybe for one person really vocabulary is the most preserved, but what if for another person for some reason block design is the, is the best performance? And we found that the, the best performance was actually even a better measure or better predictor of current uh, intelligence. So there are studies that confirm, so that, that's a good question, but, but all we can do is to do it uh, and, and, be, and make a statement that it's, it's not really uh, for 100% we can be sure. Even looking into the socioeconomical status and leisure activity, all of these are retrospect. So we have to take it really with grain of salt and, and be careful about the conclusions. I agree. Yes? 
of all the measures that you use for, for severity to, to correlate it to cognitive reserve and, um, and the effect of cognitive reserve, how did you define moderate or severe? Did you look at all the measures in, in combination, or did you just use PTA? Or did you just no, we use, we use the combination of, of all of them. We, use a, we, we had a, like a, a, a weighted score of, of follow. But then we also analyzed each one separately, as we saw, and, and we found that, that PTA, for example, was the best predictor. But, but when we overall uh, scaling was to having a weighting, weighted score. Yeah. So, Ellie, you found that the, uh, what you call the intellectual measures of cognitive reserve, which are much better than SES or um, uh, the other one. Um, leisure, leisure. Leisure. Um, however, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> over 50. What, what is it? But you have a good cognitive reserve. But the um, the leisure and SES, of course, are self-report measures, uh, whereas the intellectual measures you have are all quantitative assessment. So not only you have the bias of self-report, you also have recall bias. Because now you're asking somebody who may be... We ask also uh, family members. Yeah, but even then, family members may not have been around when they had their TBI at 19. They got married at, you know, 30. So you think that, in part, the reason why the intellectual measures are better is because it's a quantitative assessment, actual picture of what's going on as opposed to recall and self-report and all those biases. It is a good, good point. It is a good point. Uh, again, uh, I think Joshua, yeah, right? Uh, it, it's a long line with the same question that we have to admit when we're talking about pre-morbid, we're making a lot of assumptions, and that's the best we can do unless we, we can come up with uh, uh, more objective measures of uh, uh, SES, I guess, I mean, number of siblings, that's a... Yeah. Uh, a hard fact, okay? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, whether, how often did you see friends those days? I, I agree. It's a it's report. And, uh, yeah. but, but why then, let's think about it for a second. So why then the fact that it's more objective or subjective would lead, I mean, they could have maybe be more correlated to, to current performance. You would say the same, the same thing. So why, well, why it leads to, to, less predict, to be less predictive? Well, I think it's less predictive because it's less accurate. You know, the uh, SES variables and the leisure variables are all, all subjective. So if you're now, you know, 60, 70 years old, how many times did you see friends when you were 20, 25? You know, that, there's all kind of bias associated with recall and all of that, you know. So okay. I think it's less accurate. I think, obviously, there's a general effect which is not as strong as your intellectual value, because mm -hmm. I'm measuring that right now. I can measure that whether it's whole or not, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I think that when people find these kinds of cognitive reserve studies, they generally find that measures like leisure activity, social activity, are not as strong as these intellectual yeah, I don't measures. know if, if there are studies that really compare them directly on the same sample. But I think maybe that's one of the challenges to come up with the more objective yeah. and uh, measurable and uh, measures, yeah? That's going to be the, uh, the chip that you embed into your body. <laughs> and that's going to everything you've ever done in your life. That's like going to quantify we, that. That's the advantage they had with the nun study. Yeah, that's with right. With the nun, everything was recorded. That's right. Everything yeah. is documented. So that was a huge advantage. Yeah. But even, even the, uh, 
the social activity and leisure activity was controlled in yeah. those studies, right? That's true. Because <laughs> they only were limited to what they can do, right? Yeah. The other, other question I have is, so if the cognitive reserve effect is greatest in the lower severity, might that suggest then that it might even be greater in mild brain mild, injury? Absolutely. And, and how that might relate to recovery from mild head injury and how does it relate to post-concussive symptoms? That, that would be my prediction. We, we talked about it, and I think the direction of these results point into your conclusion, yes, that probably the, with mild injury, uh, cognitive reserve and maybe emotional reserve play a critical role. Do you know of any studies that have looked at that? No, I don't know of any so that, that should be true. I mean, I, I usually don't, I, I don't have access to mild injuries because, you know, there is a huge question there of differential diagnosis and, and uh, some of it's uh, PTSD. You know, it's, yeah, it's so many, difficult yeah. to dissociate. But I think that would be a challenge uh, yeah. to, to test cognitive reserve and outcome uh, for, yeah. uh, for uh, mild injuries and concussions, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have access here to, do you have mild uh, traumatic injuries? You know, no. we do. You know, I know that Cheryl has been getting some subjects from like neurosurgery groups. We can get them from... Get them. Um, with effort, we can get them. With a lot of effort, we can get them at the university. I think part of the problem with mild brain injury is maybe the majority of them don't even go to a hospital. If you have a mild brain injury, you know, you just stay out of school for a week and you go back to school. I mean, yeah. And then you have the bias of who is going to the well, hospital versus who is exactly. not. Exactly. And many times it's emotional component, a psychiatric component, yeah. or strong or whatever. Yes. Yeah. It's really hard. It is. But, but I think that, that's exactly an excellent. I think it's, you know, I don't know. I know that in Israel, and I heard from a colleague that works at the VA, that these days we're seeing more, uh, less and less severe head injury because of the airbags, helmets, yeah. and, and in the military as well, they, they, they are much better protected and they have more and more an increased number of mild injuries, concussions, and PTSD. Yeah. So the, the ratios are, are changing now. So I think it would be a real challenge to, to follow it up because that will help make predictions and maybe uh, give us some indications where to intervene. Yeah. On John's point, um, if if multiple if if cognitive reserve would play a large role in mild brain injury, what about is there a point? Do you believe there would be a point in multiple concussions where cognitive reserve would no longer play a point? Let's say if somebody had five concussions or six concussions, if there would be a point where cognitive reserve would no longer be able to compensate for. Do, do you think it's quite often that the person will have several concussions? How many sports? Sports, sports teams, sports. rugby, hunting, football. Yeah, you're saying maybe it accumulates into a severe injury. Yeah. Excellent question. Yeah, I mean, the whole controversy of CTE. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. with uh, sports injury, injuries of having you know, multiple, multiple concussions, yeah. even if yeah. subclinical blows that accumulate. Yeah. You know, it's very possible that, uh, that there's a uh, a cognitive reserve element to that, though, would be really interesting. Is that yeah. if you can, let's just say you looked at people with five to ten concussions, high versus low reserve, you know? What happens yeah. when you're 60 years old? 
Absolutely. We've talked about that actually. We looking yeah. at some brain yeah. scans and try to do that. It's a hard study to do. Because it all is, again, self-report. How many concussions did you have? Well, yeah. I need to find a concussion. Well, you could potentially look at, like, playing time. Yes. Because that should be documented. I mean, I don't... I don't and you know assume well the more they play, the more concussions. Right, especially in football, because you're yes. getting thrown around so much. It's almost yes. irrelevant absolutely. to actually get a concussion. That's a good starting point. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Or just ball-heading in soccer. Yeah, there have been some studies on ball heading and soccer that the right. more you look at the frequency, that there is some effect oh, on boxers. lower boxers for sure. Boxers. Although they need to talk about their pre morbid status. <laughs> 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 Any other questions? But that, well, thank you so much, Ali. That was really great. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about rehabilitation research at Kessler Foundation, Go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.